first episode actually fully written by Judith and Garfield of the Reeves and Stevens variety. How to write down their name. I always screw up their names. I mean, they've been Trek writers for forever, and they're pretty big geeks, you know, uh, Trek geeks, so that's awesome. This one was directed by Grossman, and it also is kind of amusing. The intro starts up and says only Serac. Now, anybody who knows the show, anybody who knows Trek, knows what that means and is like, ah, okay. And with that one word, we know this is going to be a very core Vulcan-centric thing dedicated to Serac and his relevance to the Vulcans. To anyone else, they're just going, huh? But again, this is why I talk several times about the ideas of a cold open that's designed for people who are new and some that are designed for people who are old. That is to say, people who are already pre-existing viewers, and this is definitely the latter. Then we see Forrest, Admiral Forrest, and uh, Saval. little anecdote while I was researching for this episode. It's something I, I think I knew before, and I don't remember if I mentioned all the way back in Broken Bow. Saval was not a recurring character. When you, when you audition for a role... Uh, you actually have to sit down and do a whole thing in order to say, hey, this is, you know, this is me, and this is what it's, what the role is going to be, and this is how it's going to apply, all that fun kind of stuff, right? One of those things is the type of role, because there's one-shots, there's recurrings, there's guest stars, there's the whole distinction between them, right? So Vol was specifically listed as a one-shot. It's just amusing to me, considering how much he has been a recurring character, and will continue to be so. In fact, I believe the final episode Saval will be present in is frickin' Terra Prime. Almost the last episode of the series. And in many ways, the actual last episode of the series. So, it's just kind of cool to see how much uh, he's he's maintained himself as a character. Yet another example of how much Enterprise is really backloaded when it comes to its design. Still, they're starting to code things out, lock things down. Everything's cool, everything's cool. Poor Saval. Not even telling your ambassador what your, uh, you know, what, what what is the decision of the officiates of state. That is amusing. And has some historical precedents I should probably not go into. <laughs> Saval is interesting in this scene. He is quite open and honest about his issues here. The scene between him and Forrest is actually a really good character moment. Partially for Forrest, but mostly for Saval. We can't easily classify humans, and that makes us nervous. Now, this is a very common thing in most fiction, both fantasy and science fiction, and anything that blurs the line between the two, where humans' main trait is their diversity, that they don't have standardized cultural norms or mentalities or emotional perspectives or whatever. Instead, that humans are just so diverse that that is, by its very nature, their hat, that that's what makes humans humans. Uh, this is true in Mass Effect. This is true in Forgotten Realms. You, you you could probably name a dozen others if you sat down and thought about it, right? This idea is explored here in brief, and if I might be so bold, I kind of like it. Now, a lot of people push against the humans are special meme, which is usually connected to this, but is not actually the same thing. Humans are special is usually when humans are superior, would actually be a better way to put that where the humans have to come in and show everyone else the light of the way, because we're just better than everyone else, right? Now, Star Trek was designed with that in mind, all the way back in TOS, and especially in early TNG. 
But I'd like to think that Star Trek has moved beyond that at this point. And I think that this idea is a more nuanced look at that. That rather than having a particular stint, humans don't have a stint. They don't have a, a knack. They don't have an inclination. They're just humans. And that's what makes them them, in contrast to most of the other races. My own personal take on it, as ever. Curious of your thoughts. What I do find amusing, though, is Saval also is open about something else. Humans scare them. Oh, not for any of the reasons you'd think. Ah, oh, not the barbarism or anything like that. No, it's because humans remind Vulcans of Vulcans. That they have gone through a similar path in their history. You know, they had their violence, they had their war, and then, as Saval himself so accurately puts it, in less than a century, lifted themselves up you know, by their bootstraps and somehow managed to turn themselves around into a... Well, I don't want to say an interstellar power, but, I mean, the, the the amount of progress that humanity has made within the last less than a century is monumental. So, the Vulcans took a little bit longer than that. This is not out of bounds with the humanity diversity thing, by the way. Because diversity, by its very nature, is going to encourage uh, change, which can be good or bad. You know, it is simply change. It is neither a positive nor a negative thing. But if change is going to happen, good or bad, it's probably going to happen much more quickly. Whereas most other races have a little bit more of a, uh, let's call it a cultural drift. You know, like an iceberg. It'll move. It does move. It takes a little bit longer. Humanity's more like a, you know, a rapid. <laughs> Anyways. <clears throat> this, of course, leads to Forrest dying. I'll admit, when I first saw this, very first time, I was like, wait, did they just kill Admiral Forrest? Who has also been in the show since the very first episode of the first season, by the way. But yeah, Vaughn Armstrong, uh, I, sh I, I should have looked this up. I forget if this is Vaughn's last entry in the series here. I can look that up really quick while I'm doing this. But Vaughn, yeah, he, he dies. I really was a little bit shocked about that, legitimately. Because... They usually don't kill off major recurring characters like that, and yet here we are. Nope, I was right. He does show up one more time. I was right. I was right. So we're not quite at the point where Vaughn Armstrong, the actor, has left the show, but Admiral Forrest has. It is... There's almost a poetry to it that the human admiral, who was part of a division, who was... Uh, there's no nice way to say this. Anti-Vulcan... Is, is would literally give his life in order to attempt in a last minute, not even really thinking about it, fling in order to try and save the ambassador to Vulcan's life. Or ambassador from Vulcan, excuse me. I suppose you could say a lot about that, but what most interests me is the fact that he heard the noise and just reacted without thinking about it. And that says a lot about a person. What we do when we don't really think about it says a lot about us. You know, the instinctual stuff. His instinct was to save the other man's life. And he did. And now Saval is going to be a rather significant figure for the next three episodes, counting this one, and at least one more episode in the future. So, this then leads to an interesting fake-out. You know, oh my gosh, Captain! And no, they're just, they're just playing basketball. Inch! <laughs> Interesting edit there. And they're, so, or, so they're playing basketball, having fun. Flocks, of course, apparently is an amazing shot. Something about that doesn't surprise me. But then we get the actual news. Forrest is gone. It's interesting that 
they never they don't confirm his death until the log entry and they don't even address it until later but obviously Forrest's death is going to have a bit of an impact here uh, for, for very obvious reasons he was a, a high ranking admiral within Starfleet command and was a friend of Archer's so that's fun this then leads to uh, the Vulcans coming on board and we see Robert Foxworth I like him but I have to share something. So he's the head. He is the supreme commander, effectively. The head of high command. We've heard about Vulcan high command many, many, many times since since season one. And he plays Administrator Vlas. Foxworth uh, played Admiral Layton over in Deep Space Nine, who was involved in trying to do a coup against the uh, Federation on behalf of Starfleet. Then he played General Haig over in Babylon 5, who was involved in a coup against the government. And then he played, uh, I think it was Chairman Ashman over in Stargate 1, who was involved in a coup. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just, of all the things to be typecast as, the coup guy is a weird thing to be, to be typecast as. But here we are, here we are. He's good though, I like him. He doesn't get much in this, in this episode, I just wanted to mention that while we're here. So he comes in, and other dude, whose name I didn't even write down, comes in, and they're like, hey, yeah, so it's it's the Andorians. The Andorians attacked us. My first reaction was, no, they didn't. Now, I could believe the Andorian military command, who we've already established are stupid and believe they don't need allies as long as they have a Death Star, being stupid enough to think that driving a wedge between humans and Vulcans is a good move. However, I also think that Andorian Military Command is sufficiently paranoid as to not do this unless they had something else already going for them for the inevitable backlash should backlash come. This is not the kind of thing the Andorians, even the idiot Andorians, would probably push for. Because, see, here's the thing. False flag operations are really popular in fiction, but also in real life. And that's because a false flag operation can be a great tactical and strategic goal. It, you, you have successfully turned this person against this person, either two enemies or two allies or two neutrals or whatever, and you have focused them away from you. It's it's an absolute boon, a coup, you might even say. A coup de tat. <laughs> uh, of, uh, that's the wrong word. It's a uh, coup de gras. There we go. That's actually what I meant. A coup de gras of of tactical proportions, because now all of that information, all that resources doesn't have to be dedicated towards a front that no longer exists, right? It's win-win-win, unless it's found out. This is the interesting catch about false flag operations, and something most people don't seem to acknowledge, um, at least in fiction. In real life, this is something that, to my knowledge, is standard military doctrine. You see, the problem with a false flag operation is if you're caught, it's worse than if you did nothing. Because now... All of that anger and upsetness and military hardware and uh, economic jurisdiction, everything that's being done in order to try and push against the person that you falsified is now directed at you and then magnified because you lied to them and they're now pissed and the other person, the person you falsified, is equally pissed because they're probably going to share this information. So now you have made an enemy out of two groups and it's worse than it was if you did nothing. In truth, false flag operations are such a terrifying thing if it goes badly that, generally speaking, you don't want to do one. That's that's just the, the, the doctrine that I mentioned earlier. You only do it if you are you know, in a desperate situation or you need the, the temporary reprieve that that will bring. 
So, false flag operation between the humans and the Vulcans. Uh-huh. Sure. And you'll notice that the Andorians don't even try to, you know, they, they didn't do anything to try and make this a false flag. It's just, oh yeah, the Andorians just totally attacked us. Bull crap. Instead, they go immediately to their next suspect. Well, there's the Cyrenites. I'm sorry, the who? I don't know that species. Oh no, they're a sect of Vulcans. Really? A separate political entity of Vulcans within the Vulcans. Huh. Interesting. We find out that the Cyrenites have, uh, shall we say, very uh, unusual thoughts about Surak. Very horrible. They're, they, they, they think that we do not follow Surak's path and blah, 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 blah. Hmm. Okay. <sighs> Meanwhile, the, uh, we jump over there. And we find out that Reed and Travis have found an unexploded bomb. <laughs> what I like about this scene is that it it treats it with the deadly seriousness that it deserves. And I'll admit at this point, I'm like, they're probably not going to kill off main characters, but they did just kill off Forrest. If they're going to do it, they're going to do it in Season 4. So, you know, huh. But... They call, I have to, I have to nitpick this scene because while Reed is properly serious and Travis is properly serious, and there's even this bit where Reed says, yeah, no, if I was designing the bomb, I would make it so that when the sensor beam hits it, it, it detonates because of course he would. He nevertheless calls for an emergency transport, which takes way too long to get the lock on. And an emergency transport should be a, we need to get out in a less than a few seconds kind of a range, right? Like the ship is actively exploding. Let's go. Now, on the one hand, positive note, because I'll pull my phone up just to really make the point here. He's actually doing this. He's got his comm up here against his head so that he can have it open. So he has a literally open channel uh, while he's doing this. So they are ready to beam him up at a, a less than a second's notice, right? Wrong, because he, there's this, oh, damn it. And then there's several seconds before he has to call for the beam out. And then there's another few seconds before they actually beam him out. They probably should have died here. I hate to keep nitpicking this, but this keeps pissing me off. Emergency transport means emergency transport. Right? That was a weak one. There we go. <laughs> but it's still a good scene. And uh, nice and tense. Add some some higher, higher pitch stuff. Oh, yeah. I meant to mention this earlier. Sorry. I, this is the second time I've forgotten to bring this up. We, I, I keep calling them EarthGov. Now, that's a term I've borrowed directly from Babylon 5. But it works because the actual name of the organization is United Earth. This was something that was confirmed in, well, confirmed in this episode, actually. It was referenced back in Home. Now, let's pause and talk about that for a moment. I don't mean to bash Season 1 and uh, Season 2 of Enterprise. I think I've done enough of that as is. But to continue to bash Season 1 and Season 2 of Enterprise, they hadn't designed the government of Earth yet. They hadn't given it a logo. They hadn't given it a name. They had implied that Earth was united, but that was it. That is the level, or I should say the lack of care that was put into the design and world building of Enterprise early on. And it shows, God, it shows in almost every pore of how little thought was done into the, the, the fleshing out of the setting. Now, I liked season one and season two better than I thought I would, and I'll stand by that statement, you know, going through with analysis mode on. But you can still see that general lack of this kind of 
contiguous fiber crossing the episodes, something I just keep constantly praising about season four. So the fact that they actually sat down when they were designing the episode home and they're like, they can't be here accepting a medal on behalf of Starfleet. They didn't do this for Starfleet. They did this for Earth. Well, what's the Earth government? We don't know. Well, let's freaking invent one then. And thus the United Earth comes into existence. This organization, again, is mentioned in home and actually talked about here. And we get it established as a part of canon in season four. I'm reminded of Anthem, a video game, for those of you not aware of, where the entire game takes place on a planet. They never named the planet that Anthem takes place on. <laughs> so, this then leads to T'Pau's DNA being found there. Yes, that T'Pau from Amok Time. Now, again, this is one of those for the viewers, for the fans kind of moments, because it's like, She's one of the most well-regarded and venerated members of the Federation of her time. I kind of doubt she's the one who planted the bomb. But everyone's being kind of suspicious here. And very sus going on here. Uh, especially given the fact that, you know, they wanted to immediately point the fingers at the Andorians, which, as I feel like I did a terrible job explaining, makes absolutely no sense. Jumping to blaming the Andorians and then the Cyrenites will actually make more sense in the future, but it still is an incredibly illogical leap for them to make, assuming they were being above board. And you see the problem. So, they get locked out of the investigation. If this was early Enterprise, that would just be, oh, Vulcans. But in this case, it's more like, that's odd. Why would the Vulcans claim sovereignty in total of this and then also insist on locking EarthGov out of things entirely. I know it's called United Earth. It's just so much quicker to say EarthGov. Do you mind if I keep saying that? It's also kind of gotten in my head at this point to just call them EarthGov. I've been <laughs> Four seasons, I still occasionally slip up and call them the Federation, even though it doesn't exist yet. Okay. Saval goes to talk to Archer. Archer is at the, the casket that contains what's left of Admiral Forrest. There really is something interesting about this scene because not only did uh, not only did Forrest sacrifice his life, but Saval has been kind of coming around ever since well season four actually ever since the new creative staff and explaining the Vulcans was one of the things on their to do list for season four. Remember, season four was designed to smooth out the past and connect to the future. And one of the biggest complaints that was repeated many, many times by many people, especially in message boards and email groups and all that back in the day when this was going live, was what the hell is going on with the Vulcans in this show? They're not Vulcans, they're assholes. So this was critique that was received by the creators and that they agreed with. And so here we are at the Vulcan story arc. Now I'm going to smooth out a couple other things and tie up a few more things in the future, but this was one of their earliest to-do lists. That's why this is the second arc we're running into. It also is going to contain some good character stuff and yada, 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 but I'm getting ahead of myself. The point here, though, is Saval, having finally kind of started becoming a Vulcan instead of, you know, eh, he does something which I, I love the poetry of this because it's so Trek, right? It's so Trek to be like, we will destroy the Klingons. Doodly doodly doodly. We are allies with the Klingons. We will destroy the Romulans. Doodly doodly doodly. The Romulan Republic is awesome. You know, it's such a Trek thing. And I like that. I kind of always have. Making friends of enemies. 
Hell, I do that in real life. So, Saval, who was one of the most opposed to the NXO-1 mission, who was one of the most opposed to humans being allowed to do their own things, now being one of their biggest advocates amongst Vulcan hierarchy, that's appropriate, isn't it? It's very Trek. And he tells Archer, he backs Archer, you do what you have to. You, you accomplish what you need to do. I've got your back all the way. Damn! That's... Think about that. Really put that side by side with Broken Bow. I mean, I know that's showing the furthest extremes of this arc, but really look at that. It's okay. Saval's not done being awesome. Uh, Graham, I forget his full name, but Graham, uh, the actor who plays Saval, helps because he, he, he lends some wonderful weight to the role. <sighs> Meanwhile, we find out that there's been new security measures. Yeah. I mean, there's been a terrorist attack, so we lock down on security. That's kind of how that works. <laughs> reference, reference. We're moving, we're moving. And Koss shows up briefly. Remember him? It's okay. I, I wouldn't be surprised if you decided to forget him, since you're probably used to things no longer mattering once the credits roll. I'll probably stop bringing it up at some point, but it just continues to amuse and please me that things keep mattering after the credits roll. Koss shows up, and he has a gift. You know, it's it's an heirloom that she decided it was time for you to go ahead and have this. But your mother is a Cyrenite, so she has to go into hiding. So she went through me to get it to you. And Paul's like, oh, wow, thank you so much. Turns to Archer. I've never seen this before in my life. Now, I know they call it Idix. They called it Idix back in TOS. Or at least I think it was mentioned in TOS. I know they called it that back in TAS. I think they mentioned it once in TNG, and they say it several times in Enterprise. I've always hated that, so please forgive me if I keep saying IDIC, because IDIC just sounds better to me than ITIC. ITIC sounds weird. I don't know. It's never worked for me. It's a shame, because I love the idea. It's actually an idea I believe in, legitimately, in real life. Infinite diversity and infinite com uh, complexities or combinations, or whatever the actual thing stands for, because I keep saying it wrong. I believe in this thing I keep saying wrong. I, I do, though. The idea of that diversity, the idea of different ideas bouncing off of different people, generating new ideas, right? I've talked about this concept before as a way of developing, but it also works on a cultural level, on a societal level. It's good stuff. I love it. But it, of course, has a thing, and it leads us to Vulcan's Forge. Cute. That was actually referenced back in TAS, in the episode yesteryear, and, of course, was brought up over in Deep Space Nine. So that's cute. Speaking of TAS... We see a Salot here. It, uh, it looks a little bit more impressive than it did back in TAS, which I have no idea when yesteryear is going live in relation to this episode. It would be really funny if these were side by side. Forgive me, I gotta look this up now. So I got my calendar right here. So where are we at? Where are we at? So there's season three. Here's season four. Uh, looks like. Oh, you've gotta be kidding me. Yesterday was yesteryear. That's great. I did not plan that, I swear. This is just how the schedule lined up. But yeah, it looks like t the TAS videos have actually started now. <laughs> so we just get our look at a Salot, and now we get a different look at a Salot. A little more terrifying. I love the little line, by the way. Vulcan children do not forget to feed their Salot. I believe you. <laughs> Poor Ichaya. This is when we start looking into the difference between simple, simple facts and complex facts. This is actually referenced, of all places, in a Telltale game. 
uh, one of the Batman ones. I believe it was the first one. Someone was jumping in saying, the simple facts say this. And uh, Commissioner Gordon, I, I think it was actually Detective Gordon at the time, says, well, then we need to start looking for complex facts. And I had to pause the game and just praise him for that. One of the biggest problems, in my opinion, with an overwhelming majority of, of society in general is an emphasis on simple facts and settling for, for lack of a better way to put it, settling for simple facts rather than looking for complex facts. Now, simple facts are easy to understand. That's why they're that. But simple facts also tend to be more surface level and have a tendency to be wrong, whereas complex facts have a higher chance of being correct, at least until we prove them wrong, because that's how life works. <laughs> you know? And I love this this showcasing of this, because... They had the Vulcan, it's open up shut case. They've got DNA for T'Pau on the thing, and the Syrianites have been blamed by the high command. Done, right? Well, hang on, let's look at that DNA. No, there's no need. The simple facts speak for themselves. Well, hang on, hang on. And we look at the DNA and we find out that it's, it's only a couple months old. So that's actually the DNA of a child. Huh. So either a few month old person, somehow was wandering around the area planting evidence or this is planted evidence take your pick now what's funny is this is track it would actually be not out of bounds for this to be a hyper accelerated clone that was made of tapau whose only job was to run in plant the bomb and then die but thankfully in this case it is simply planted evidence i'll just go ahead and give that away and it turns out that Mr. I-didn't-even-write-down-his-name was actually the one who planted the bomb. This is probably one of the bigger logical flaws of this whole plot. The Vulcan High Command has decent reach and influence. There's no reason for them to send someone this high up on the totem pole to personally do this. This also leads to another problem. Saval decides to go directly to uh, Velas and the whatever his name is. Evil guy and confront them with the fact that they did this, in so doing, exposing himself in a way that you know, shames him and is basically torpedoing his career. Okay. Why? Now, I was going to get you ready to tear this a new one. Then I actually started thinking about it, and that's very Vulcan, isn't it? There's just a weird vulcan sense of being able to confront someone to their face with an unpleasant truth and expect them to react in a logical manner to it instead what happens is they don't even address his concerns they don't even acknowledge them instead they immediately turn this around on him and attack him in a very well human kind of a matter i don't think saval was ready for that what I, to explain what i mean a little bit here the Vulcan society, especially at this point in history, has this really big thing about pride and shame. This is something I talked about over in TOS, something I've talked about in ENT. Um, the Vulcans, if you if you confront a Vulcan to their face with an uncomfortable, unpleasant truth, that's supposed to be like a, a power play uh, or, a, or a move that's supposed to provoke a specific type of response with the way their culture works. Because if you're saying something openly, that means you you have the backing and resources necessary to make that judgment, not just presume it, not just deduce it, but to state it. This is true, rather than this could be true. Thus, stating this thing, you confront them with it, and now they have to deal with it, even though they would rather not. Make sense? In this case, however, they don't react in the way Saval anticipates. Instead, they just shut him down hard. 
you're going to be summoned to the High Council and we're going to call you to task for this crime. And then they walk out and Saval's just like, huh. Uh, and you could see he's just floundering, which makes sense, because this is very not Vulcan, isn't it? And that's the whole point. That's the whole complaint that they're trying to address here. Let's put this in immediate contrast to uh, Arev. Arev? I forget how they pronounce it. First of all, praise to Michael Nauri, who, uh, who plays Arev. Does a really good job with it. He's only there for a bit, and he's only there in this episode. But he needs to strike a specific balance. And I've heard interviews about this, and they talk about how he comes across differently. But when I actually watched it, I came up with my own presentation, my own version of that, if you'll forgive me for sharing. He comes across as a TNG Vulcan. And I never realized how stark the contrast is between an ENT Vulcan and a TNG Vulcan until I thought that exact thought. And I was just like, oh, wow. Picture the Vulcans in Sarek, for example. Not Sarek himself, the other one. Remember him? Uh, that's probably, there's other examples of it, but that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Tuvok would also be a pretty good example of what I'm talking about, since he is probably what I would consider to be the Vulcan when it comes to Vulcan presentation. Because, um, you know, Spock wasn't the Vulcan. So, you look at that and it's like, wow! Because that is exactly how it comes across. There's just a serenity to him. He just rolls with things completely. And in a, in a, not in a way that shows he doesn't care. Not in a way that's cold, not in a way that's bland, not in a way that's empty. He's not stuck up. He's not irritable. He's just, okay. There's a, I don't have a better word for it. There's a serenity to the way he presents himself, which is so very Vulcan. Actual Vulcan. And I love it. I love his portrayal. I love how he shows himself there. And again, showing him directly in contrast to Velas is necessary to really show what they're trying to establish here. This then leads to um, a bit of background story. We find out about the IDIC, the IDIC. We find out about Katra. That's cute. And we find out that uh, Surak ended up fighting against those who, who march beneath the raptor's wings. Obvious reference to the Romulans. Remember, except he says it in Vulcan, and we're out. Except there is one last thing. Obviously, I will give credit to Bakula because he actually manages to play the different archer pretty well here. And again, there's just a certainty behind it, which is what Bakula manages, which is good because he needs to do that in reference to everything I just stated. With that, we chop off. We move on to part two. <laughs>